2: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at
3: homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so the other day I was driving past Turner Field here in Atlanta. You know, that's the the stadium where the Braves used to play, but it was originally built to serve as the Olympic Stadium back in the 96 Olympics that were here. You know, I'd actually forgotten that was the reason it was built. Yeah, and I was thinking about the first time I'd ever stepped foot in that stadium. I was in high school at the time, and my family had made the trip over from Birmingham to watch some Olympic track and field. And it is an experience I will never forget. That was the year Michael Johnson and those bright yellow shoes just destroyed the competition in pretty much every race he ran. You remember this, right? Yeah, definitely. I remember watching him in a few of the heats leading up to his gold medal races and seeing some of the best athletes in the world honestly just looked like children as he was just that much better than everybody else. Yeah, he was incredible. I I remember watching him from home. Well, I remember thinking, how could somebody's body be that much better at doing what it was doing than every other runner out there? And these are some of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. It was just wild. But as we've done our research in recent weeks, we've realized that all human bodies do some pretty incredible things. So today we're going to talk about some of the most incredible and weird things our bodies do. And Michael Johnson, if you're listening, and I'm sure he is, Definitely. I think he is, <laughs> it's time you knew that we're pretty special too. So let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, doing that weird thing where he like waves with his ear. It's not (gasps) like a twitch. How does he do that? It's like a true wave wave. It is so strange. So, but we're talking about things we do with our bodies. And so that's appropriate. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So today we're taking a long, hard look in the mirror to find out just how weird the human body really is. You know, we tend to think of our brains as being the most remarkable and defining features of our species. And, you know, for good reason. But the human body is no slouch when it comes to these unusual qualities either. So with our own weirdness in mind, we thought it'd be fun to take this anatomical tour of our most peculiar physical abilities.
4: Yeah, and along the way, we'll try to figure out what our bodies are actually made of, as well as what happens to them once we kick the bucket.
3: All right. So I thought we could start by looking at the building blocks of our bodies, you know, which are, of course, these hundreds of different types of cells that make us up. I think it'll be a good refresher because, you know, we usually take our body at face value and, and kind of think of it as this one continuous thing. Rather than maybe, I don't know, like this composite mass of microscopic tissue blobs that it it really
4: is. (laughs) I mean, I feel like we're always hearing about these building blocks, but how many does it actually take to build a complete person? Do you know?
3: Well, as you might expect, it's not the easiest thing in the world to calculate. So I, I was looking into it, though. And the best guess comes from a group of researchers who actually broke down the number of cells in the human body according to organs and cell types. So, for example, the average body contains about 50 billion fat cells, 240 billion liver cells, and so on. And when you add up all these different cell counts, the total comes to an astounding 37.2 trillion cells. It's unbelievable.
4: <laughs> That's a lot of trillion cells. Yes, it is. But uh, it's actually insane to think that that many cells can get along and, like, function in a single human body. And they do it for decades. Yeah. But aside from having this
3: impressive figure to throw around, is there any real benefit to knowing how many cells compose the body? Well, there actually is. You know, according to the authors of the study, quote, knowing the total cell number of the human body as well as the individual organs is important from a cultural, biological, medical, and comparative modeling point of view. So imagine a doctor who measures a patient's liver cell, and they find that it's, you know, maybe way below average. Well, that kind of quick comparison makes it easier to identify potential health problems earlier on. That's pretty cool. And obviously, cells carry out all kinds of vital functions that go overlooked, but they also have
4: this other impact on our bodies that's even easier to miss. Have you ever heard of the Blatchco lines? No, I can't say that I have. So it's actually the term for this swirling pattern of invisible stripes that covers the human body from head to toe. Invisible stripes? I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure you're making this one up. (laughs) No, it's true. So well, one of the first people to notice them was this German dermatologist named Alfred Blachko, which is where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. But in the early 1900s, he observed similarities and patterns of many of his patients' rashes and blemishes. And it was almost like these formations were following these invisible lines on the skin. But the paths didn't exactly coincide with underlying nerves or blood vessels. And the truth about the lines wasn't discovered until way later. But we now know that they're actually the lingering signs of our cellular development. And how's that? Well, we may have, what was it, 37 trillion cells, you said? 37.2 (laughs) trillion. Yeah, but each of us just started as one. And then this uh, single-celled zygote then divided into a small bundle of cells. And from there, the cells divide again and again. You know, sometimes differentiating into specialized cells, ones that would form our various muscles or bones and organs. But skin cells, like, they're scarcer than other kinds of cells. And they have to stretch and expand as they divide in order to cover our fast-growing bodies. And when this happens, lines of different cells begin to
3: intersect, knocking into each other and creating molecular swirls in our skin. And so does this happen all over our bodies? And, and why can't we see these?
4: Yeah, so the lines are everywhere. You know, they're up and down your arms and legs and around your head and torso, too. I mean, the reason we don't see them is that all of our cells tend to carry the same DNA instructions on how much pigment to use in our skin. So these subtle differences in the color between the lines of skin cells are there, but they're really hard for us to see, unless you're checking for them under UV light. That said, there are people with certain skin conditions that cause these stripes to be visible to the naked eye, and this is because their skin cells actually disagreed about which color to make
3: the skin, with some saying they should make it lighter, others making it darker. That's so interesting. That's bizarre. I mean, I mean, our bodies shed about a pound and a half of skin every year which means that our surface skin cells are replaced every couple of weeks. So given that quick turnaround, it's pretty wild to think that we're also just wrapped in these invisible lines that, you know, kind of date back to the dawn of skin.
4: I know. It's it's really weird to think about. But honestly, the whole body is this mishmash of cells of all different ages. Like, you know, the, the lining of our stomachs and intestines? We literally burn through those cells every few days because of all the bile and acids that we use to digest our foods. And we're just really lucky that replacement cells are always at the ready, or else we'd be digesting our own stomachs, too. Mm. And some cells do stick around longer than others, like red blood cells have a, I think it's a four-month lifespan before new ones are produced to take their place. But given a long enough timeline, just about every part of the human body is replaced like this. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's sort
3: of eerie how in flux our bodies are, constantly undergoing this cycle of cellular death and birth and... It actually makes me think about that ancient Greek thought experiment about the ship of Theseus. You you remember this, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about it a little bit before. But the story goes that Athenians preserved the ship of Theseus, who was the mythical king and founder of Athens after he passed away. But as time went on, they had to gradually replace the ship's rotting wooden planks and finally no piece of the original ship was left. So philosophers have had a field day with this ever since then because you know it raises all kinds of questions about permanence and identity – And namely, you know, if if none of the original pieces are still in place, can you really still call it the ship of Theseus? Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of why so many people have
4: this, like, brain over body bias when it comes to their Mm self-identity. I mean, the vast majority of the neurons in our brains form before birth and stay with us our whole lives. Unlike this constant turnover we experience in, like, red blood cells and almost every other part of the body, Maybe it's comforting even on this like unconscious level to tie your sense of self to something that's a bit more long lasting.
3: That's yeah, an interesting thought. And this is kind of a tangent, but you mentioned red blood cells before and it it reminded me of this weird study I found while we were doing our research. So, you know, you get dizzy or lightheaded when you move to higher altitudes, you know, like if you're hiking on a steep trail or heading up into the mountains or something.
4: So this is hard for me to admit, but I never get tired when I'm climbing mountains. But uh, I right. think I think I know what you mean.
3: <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Well, anyway, there's a special protein in our red blood cells that gets depleted when we're exposed to low oxygen levels. And when that protein is gone, other substances in our blood are then able to help us adapt to the change in oxygen. But here's the cool part. So our red blood cells don't replace that protein once it's spent, which means that they're able to actually, like, remember their exposure to higher altitudes for the next time you head to higher ground. Wait, that's crazy. So when I head back to the mountain, my body actually acclimates faster than before? That's exactly what happens. I mean, the only catch is that four-month lifespan you mentioned before. So if you wait longer than that before you return to the higher altitude – those red blood cells that remembered your last excursion, they'll be gone. And, you know, you'll have to teach a whole new crop of cells about that shortcut to being acclimatized. Well, that's pretty amazing. But did you realize that uh, human fat cells last 10 years on average? So it could take a full 25 years before they're all finally replaced. Really? That long? But what happens if we, like, exercise like crazy? Wouldn't that help some of them go away more quickly? Afraid not. Really? uh, Yeah.
4: our, Our fat cell count is this constant. So when we gain or lose weight, that doesn't actually affect it at all. The ones we have just grow bigger or smaller depending on which way we're tipping the scales.
3: So you're saying no matter how overweight or underweight or whatever we are, we would still have the same number of fat cells? Yeah, exactly the same number. We're stuck with them. That is <laughs> crazy. So I mean, it's, it's it's bizarre that they can last more than a quarter of our lifespan compared to these other cells.
4: I know. It's even longer than the turnover on our bones, which are completely refreshed with new cells every 10 years. And it's similar to our muscles, which tend to make it
3: 15 years before being replaced. Wow, that is so weird to even think about, like our bones being replaced from and their cells. And our muscles, That's bizarre, but but not every muscle. I mean, our hearts are actually one of the few things that last our entire lives, or at least most of it. See, our heart cells regenerate very slowly. I think it's at about 1% of a 25-year-old's heart cells are replaced each year. And that number actually continually decreases as you get older. In fact, less than half of your heart cells will actually be replaced over the course of your entire life.
4: Well, I kind of like that there's at least one body part we can depend on for a little constancy. Right. Actually, I I read the study in New Scientist that gave me yet another reason to appreciate the human heart. Because apparently listening to your own heartbeat can actually help you read someone else's mind.
3: All right, I think you're going to need to walk me through this when I'm trying to process what you just
4: said. <laughs> sure. So most creatures have this weird ability called interoception that uh, that it lets us sense the internal states of our bodies, like when we feel hungry or thirsty, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And many researchers think this ability is actually what allows humans to generate emotions. For example, like imagine you're walking alone at night and you hear the footsteps of someone sneaking up behind you. Like, the idea is that you're only going to feel afraid once you've noticed your own body's internal state. Like, the increase in your heart rate or the hairs standing up on the back of your neck.
3: Yeah, But, I mean, that kind of just sounds like reading your own mind or something. So how how do other people figure into this?
4: So that's what I was thinking, too. But there's this researcher at Oxford named Jeff Bird, and this is what he wanted to know. So he assembled a group of 72 volunteers and measured their interoception abilities by having them. uh, They had to count their own heartbeats without actually taking their pulse. Mm. And, And then the participants watched videos of different social interactions and answered questions that were meant to test how well they could I guess, infer the mental states of the characters. Mm -hmm. So, for for example, one scene showed this man making a pass at a woman who was clearly interested in someone else. And the question posed was, is she feeling annoyed? (laughs) And as it turned out, the participants who were better at counting their own heartbeats actually performed better at this kind of question. Like their ability to track their own internal states made them more empathetic to the feelings of others.
3: Wow, that's pretty crazy. And I don't want to name any names, but I feel like we know a few people who must be horrible at counting their heartbeats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but but just their feelings, right? I mean, they they couldn't tell what a person was planning to have for dinner or something just because they were, you know, aware of their heartbeat or something, Definitely right? not. I mean, when participants were asked questions about a character's
4: thoughts that didn't involve emotion, the more interoceptive people lost their edge. But either way, I thought it was amazing that being in touch with your physiological state not only makes you more aware of your own emotions, but also of those of other people.
3: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about many of the eccentricities of the human body. All right, Mego. so before we leave the cellular world behind for good, I, I do want to mention what is maybe the weirdest thing about the human body, and that's just how little of it is actually human at all. Wait, what are you talking about? Well, according to estimates from multiple scientific studies, there are 10 times as many bacterial cells in our bodies as there are human cells. And we talked a little bit about this in our clean episode way Mm -hmm. back when, one of our first episodes where we talked about the microbiome. I mean, just think about for a second, most of our bodies are not actually our bodies. You know, from the outer surface of our skin to the pits of our stomach, we're literally crawling with foreign microorganisms.
4: Yeah. I mean, an infestation of body bugs is deeply unsettling to me, and it might be another reason why we prefer to think of ourselves as brains and not bodies, but... You know, on the bright side, the bacteria inside us do help with all kinds of important bodily functions, like, I don't know, channeling the nutrients from our food and uh, supporting our immune systems.
3: Yeah, and and thankfully they're pretty easy to ignore, too. You know, since bacterial cells are so much smaller than human cells, we we really don't ever have to look at them. Although, honestly, I don't know if I can forget about them after reading that if you somehow manage to gather up all the bacteria living inside you— it would be enough to fill up a half-gallon jug.
4: That's so disgusting. And I, I don't know why, but stuffing them into a jug makes them even grosser. <laughs> me. Yes, it does. <laughs> Although, uh, did you know, according to the Belly Button Biodiversity Project out of Rob Dunn Lab, our navels are actually one of the best places to store our microbes. In fact, there are more than 1,400 bacterial strains living in there.
3: That's pretty gross and kind of amazing. But actually, I think I'm more blown away by the fact that there's a program devoted to the biodiversity of our belly buttons. (laughs) You said it was called the Belly Button Biodiversity Project? Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, so did they figure out if it makes a difference whether you have an innie or an outie? They did. So it turns out bacteria doesn't discriminate between belly buttons because the same amount turns up in both kinds. All right. So now that we've done away with the pesky misconception that we're independent living beings instead of these walking, talking Petri dishes, why don't we talk about some other things that our bodies do that we've been totally wrong about all along? Sure. And I've actually got a great one. So this is something I've been wrong
4: about for a long time, and it's why our fingers and toes turn all pruny and wrinkled when we go swimming or take a bath. I'd always heard that it had something to do with, like, water being absorbed into your, like, outer layer of skin and so that it bulges in some places or whatever. Yeah. But that's all wrong, apparently. Um, I, so I, I saw this from researchers at two AI labs in Boise, Idaho, and they confirmed a different theory. They had these volunteers pick up a bunch of wet marbles of all different sizes, and some people used their regular old dry hands to grasp the marbles, and others used wrinkly, pruny fingers that they had soaked in warm water for half an hour. (laughs) Like, I just love that someone designed this experiment. But as it turned out, the participants with wrinkled fingers were way faster at picking up wet
3: marbles than people with dry fingers. So all right, so our fingers and toes get pruny to help us grip wet things?
4: Yeah, I mean the the process basically works the same way that rain treads do on car tires. Huh. But the really cool thing is that the wrinkling is this involuntary reaction that's controlled by the same part of the body's nervous system that uh that actually handles stuff like breathing or, or uh sweating. The blood vessels below our skin constrict automatically, which
3: tightens the skin above them to form the wrinkles. That's pretty interesting. But, but why do our bodies place so much importance on getting a grip on wet objects? I mean, it, it seems strange that it's lumped in with these crucial processes like breathing and sweating and things like that.
4: So I, I was curious about that, too. And the researchers in Boise suggest that the wrinkling might be this evolutionary holdover. Back from when our ancestors had to gather wet vegetation from shores like streams or riverbeds. And it was the same with our toes. I mean, that was helpful because it was useful for getting
3: around on slippery rocks. That actually reminds me of another body misconception, and that's the idea that fingerprints are there not only to help us keep tabs on criminals, but to improve our grip. So on the surface, it makes sense that the grooves of our fingerprints might improve the friction rate between our skin and whatever it is we're Mm -hmm. holding, you know, like a glass of water or something like that. But according to a 2009 study from a group of researchers in Manchester, finger pads with prints actually provide a third less contact with the glass than completely smooth finger pads. That's so crazy that they actually hinder our grip. So why do we have them then? I mean, I, I'm guessing they're not just for uh, detecting crimes or whatever. Right. Well, their their true purpose is still a little bit of a mystery, but there are definitely some prevailing theories out there. One of them is that when we touch something, the skin vibrations that occur between the ridges of our prints, well, they help us to feel these fine textures that we'd otherwise miss. And that's cool. There's another suggestion that fingerprints wick water away from our fingertips. And that allows the skin to stretch more easily so it can keep from becoming blistered or torn through use over such a long period of time. That's pretty cool. So while we're talking about misconceptions, there's this other one I came across,
4: and it's what should be considered our most valuable body part.
3: And what do you mean by valuable? Like, how much you can sell a kidney for on the black market, or what?
4: No, I mean, although, you know you can get $250,000 for one of those? No way, seriously? yeah.
3: So, this is about
4: skin, and in particular it's the uh, foreskins from freshly circumcised newborns. So, there was this time when these little pieces of excess skin were just thrown out in the trash, but now that scientists understand the growth potential of embryonic stem cells, like the ones in an infant's foreskin, they're actually being used to grow all kinds of skin for medical treatments, and In fact, a bit of foreskin the size of a postage stamp can actually produce about four acres of new skin
3: tissue in a lab. No way. Yeah, and and that can be used for, like, grafts, for burns, and other injuries. Wow. All right, so so you meant valuable as in, like, beneficial. So, yeah, that that (laughs) makes a lot more sense. I just wanted to clarify that. That makes sense, though. Well, I mean, the, the medical benefits are obvious, but you're
4: crazy if you don't think there's money to be made there too. I mean, labs and cosmetic companies rake in millions in profit thanks to the skin they receive from hospital donations. Wow! Yeah, but what do you say we talk a little bit about what happens to the rest of our bodies once we're done using them?
3: All right. Well, before we get started with that, why don't we take a quick break?
4: Hey there. So we're talking about incredible things our bodies can do. And I wanted to invite one of our uh, fellow hosts here, Jonathan Strickland, who's the host of the wonderful podcast Tech Stuff here in the office. Uh, and I thought he could tell us a little bit about bodies and technology and, and also play a dumb quiz with us.
2: Uh, I love all of these things. <laughs> I am very pleased to be here, for I love dumb quizzes, and I love talking about tech. <laughs> I'm into that. So, yeah. And and Will is off uh, right now. He's, he's uh, in lots of important meetings, but he'll be back
4: on the show <laughs> a little later. So tell me something incredible that tech is aiding human bodies to do.
2: Okay, so... You've heard about technology using things like, uh, you know, like, uh, exoskeletons in order to help move larger uh, pieces of equipment, things like being able to lift more weight than mm-hmm. you normally would. Have you ever heard about uh, an exoskeleton that does the opposite of that? No. OK, so I actually got to wear this. Uh-huh. There is an aging exoskeleton uh-huh. and the purpose of it is to give people who are able-bodied young people an experience of what it's like to have undergone the effects of aging. Uh-huh. And the exoskeleton itself uses various joints to create resistance so that it's harder for you to move around. It's like you've got, you know, your, your joints are all stiff. It, you, your balance is off. You wear a headset uh-huh. that actively starts to obscure your vision and uh-huh. as if you have cataracts or have developed other vision problems. The headphones will start to create static, so it's harder for you to hear. Uh-huh. And the whole purpose of it, it's actually uh, uh, bankrolled by an insurance company. Uh But the purpose of it is to give people an appreciation for the challenges that the elderly face day to day. Just through the process of aging, what our bodies typically go through in this aging process—that is
4: incredible. So, so do
2: they like uh dial it up to? This is what you at sixty. This is you at seventy. This Absolutely, is you at really... they do. And I experienced this in front of a live audience. <laughs> it was a humbling experience because I I had to be helped. Yeah, I could not. I couldn't. I suddenly could not walk across a stage the way I, I thought I would be able to because my balance was off. My my knees weren't working the way I would expect them to. I couldn't really see very well, even you, in a brightly lit environment. Did you feel like a distinct difference
4: at any particular age? Like, was the difference between 50 and 60 a bigger jump or 60 and 70? 60
2: and 70 was probably the biggest jump. Really? 60 and 70. If 70 and 80, once you get to that point, it's it's – It's increasingly difficult, but 60 to 70, and obviously this is all based off of averages. Not every human body is going to age exactly the same way. Obviously, your activity levels and your diet and lots of other factors are going to play a part in that. But to me, it was an incredible use of technology to not only get across this this idea that we all are familiar with. We all know as we age, Mm -hmm. our physical capabilities will decrease. That's, Mm -hmm. That's an element of aging. But knowing and experiencing are two different things. Sure. And being able to experience that and have a deeper appreciation for what the elderly around me go through just on a daily basis, mm-hmm. it was really eye-opening. And uh, uh, obviously, this is not an experience that everyone can have easily. They're not yeah. going to market these. It's not like you're going to go out and buy, hey, guys, let's find out what it's like to be 80 today. You know, you're not going to go out and buy an exoskeleton and do that. Yeah. But, it really was an interesting way to open up this conversation, and of course, for the purposes of this demonstration, it was to have sort of uh, end-of-life insurance planning, that sort of thing, to help to help pr- prepare people and to care for people as they're entering uh, the advanced years of their age, and to to explain to younger people this is why this this kind of product is important. That yeah. was that was their their rationality for. Doing all of this. And I found it fascinating because I usually talk about technology as a way of augmenting our abilities, sure. not to remove them. But in a way, you could argue this is to augment compassion. Yeah, I, I love that. that yeah. That's really wonderful.
4: Um, and, and I, I know one of the things I admire about you is that you, uh, Walk like three miles a day, right? Yes. Yeah, to, to the office. Six, six miles total because <laughs> it's, it's, it's three incredible. miles here and three miles home. So, so, but when you
2: left that, did you just appreciate your walks more? Or oh appreciate yeah, appreciate your body. Like, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so for those who do not live in the bustling metropolis that is Atlanta, uh-huh. there are certain areas where the sidewalks are not terribly level, mm-hmm. and once in a while, I might have a little stumble if I'm not really paying attention, sure. right? Wearing that suit, if I were wearing that suit and trying to take, take that same pathway home, I'm not sure that I could make it to the house. That's really incredible. You know, at least not without lots and lots of stops. I rests. love this idea of augmenting fashion. I
4: think that's really just a wonderful way to put it. So before I get to a quiz, because I do want to get to a quiz, yes. uh, I, I know you're a big uh, game player. You yes. play board games, video mm-hmm. games, everything. Uh, and the holidays are coming up. I, I was curious if you had one or two recommendations for our
2: audience that you could sort of – Uh, Say, has the Jonathan Strickland seal of approval? Uh, Sure. Uh, Just the the day before we record this, I had a chance to play through uh, The Thing, which is based off the 1982 John Carpenter horror film, The Thing. Uh And uh, that was a huge amount of fun. It's got a bit of an identity game where... Someone in the game is working at cross purposes of everybody else, but mm-hmm. you don't, you don't know the identity of the other players. You only know your own. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're the traitor or not. Yeah. But you don't, if you're not the traitor, you don't really know who to trust. And that creates an amazing dynamic as you play through this game. And, and it, it looks like both
4: a beautifully designed game, but also, uh, I mean, obviously the, the gameplay seemed really inter- interesting as well, right? Yes.
2: It, it was, it got to a point where we were actually doing this on live on camera, but it got to a point where we just forgot about that. We were just playing the game. Like we weren't performing, weren't performing anymore. Yeah. No, we were just like, oh, I, re- I really think Scott Benjamin is the bad guy. It turns out Scott was not the bad yeah. guy. That, I I owe Scott Spoiler. an enormous <laughs> apology. But uh, but in his defense, he was really squirrely in that game session. But yeah, that that's a big uh, that's got a big thumbs up from me you know there's there's also a a game if you're if you like cheeky games uh-huh. if you like things like you know there's cards against humanity is probably the one that everyone thinks about but there's a game called million dollars but and it creates scenarios where you get a million dollars but and there's this condition oh, i like that and it's a it's one of those party games where you're playing with multiple people and people may give you uh, a a thing where there's a, a trigger, something, some event happens, mm-hmm. and then there's a condition. This is what happens when you hear that. So it might be every time a bell rings, you have to punch the person to your left. Mm-hmm. So he's like, yeah, you'd get a million dollars. But every time you hear a bell ring, whoever's staying to your left, you're just going to punch them and you have to deal <laughs> with the consequences after that. And uh, and then typically the way it works is that the judge for that round looks at all the different conditions and they decide, all right. Out of all of these, which is the one that I would most likely accept in return for getting a million dollars? And uh, it tells you a lot about the people around you <laughs> and how much they value their own personal safety. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, uh, I'll definitely look for that. I haven't uh, hadn't heard of it before. But before you leave, we want to put you to one of our own games. Today we're playing a game called uh, Three Letter Body Parts. All right. And basically we'll give you a clue and you just have to tell us what body part we're talking about. Okay. okay. And, and I, I know you'll do great at this. So question number one. Instead of three, a woman from northern England has four color cones in what body part? That would have to be the eye. That's right. So uh, because of the mutation, she can see 99 million more colors than the average person. So you're one for one. All right. Ready? Number yes. two. While some cultures claim this is a sign of intelligence, the condition where your second metatarsal is larger than your first metatarsal is known as Morton's what? Toe? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Morton's toe is where your second toe is bigger than your first, and it's also known as shepherd's toe or Greek foot. (laughs) Uh, I guess I have that.
2: My second toe is larger than my first toe. Well, I always knew you were smart.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Question three. When 60 million people tuned in to watch Elvis Presley's debut on The Ed Sullivan Show, censors made sure he was only shot from the waist up because they were nervous about his what-shaking. That would be his hip. That's right. And less memorable is uh, the fact that a nervous announcer on the show accidentally introduced him as Elvin Presley. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that's absolutely right. So you're three for three. Doing great here. Uh, Question four. Kiloscopy is a type of forensics that might investigate cups, water bottles, or cigarette butts at crime scenes for these prints. Lip? Yeah. Um, while lip prints aren't often used at trial, women and men's prints are distinctive, and everyone's lip prints are completely unique. Wow. Yeah. It's just that uh, juries don't know about it, so they don't use it right now, but, but they're sort of gaining acceptance. Huh. And uh question number five, you're four for four. I think you can go five for five here. Oh. Oddly enough, this sort of piercing existed back in prehistoric times. Oatsy, the ice mummy, had both of
2: his pierced ear. That's right. All right. So <laughs> John <laughs> took a took a wild stab at that one. <laughs>
4: Well, you went five for five. That's incredible. We're going to send you home with a part-time genius certificate of genius when we actually get those printed up. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad that it's that and not a body part that, starts with, that has three letters in it. That would have been awkward to have yeah. at my desk. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for having me.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
4: Okay, well, so it's time to find out what kind of weird stuff our bodies get up to once we've vacated the premises. And to start, I-, I thought we could debunk a long-running postmortem myth that gets passed around way too frequently. The idea that our hair and fingernails continue to grow even after death. Wait, that's not true. I mean, I've read that so many times before. <laughs> I know it's everywhere, but it's actually impossible. So after your heart stops beating, our cells start to die from a lack of oxygen and putrefy within a matter of minutes. And without that fresh oxygen in the bloodstream, the cell division in our nails and hair growth simply can't happen. So there's all this definitive proof that you're talking about, but why have I heard this so much? Well, I mean, sometimes books and other media help perpetuate the myth, so there's this part in All Quiet on the Western Front where the narrator imagines a dead friend's nails continue to grow. I mean, they grow into these long spirals and, and the hair in the skull just keeps lengthening, and that's just one of a ton of cultural references, but Really, I, I think the biggest reason for the misconception is the fact that our skin shrinks as it dries out in the hours after our death. And that causes the skin to retract,
3: which makes it look like our hair and nail are actually getting longer. Huh, no kidding. Well, I, I guess I can accept that explanation. It makes sense. Though given how so much about death remains unknown to the living, I, I guess it makes sense that all kinds of crazy theories would spring up about it. You know, for example, have you ever heard the idea that caught on the 1800s, this miasmatic theory? No. What is that? Well, it comes from the ancient Greek word miasma, which means pollution or bad air. And and so the prevailing belief during the 19th century was that dead people produced miasma on their own. So most people, doctors included, really, were were convinced that rotting corpses expelled little toxic clouds that then hung around the (laughs) gravesite. And people would get sick from this and lead to the spread of diseases like cholera. And of course, all of this was later disproven, but miasmatic theory did leave its mark on culture in a major way. You know, the regulation that requires bodies to be buried six feet under? Mm -hmm. So that was the recommended depth for preventing the miasma fumes from reaching the surface.
4: That's so funny. I I just think about that like rain cloud following Charlie Brown around. (laughs) That's his miasma. (laughs) But uh, I actually came across a few real-life horror stories about airtight caskets, and I I wanted to share them with you because it's about the kind that's in uh, above-ground mausoleums. Mm -hmm. So the, the setup might keep you safe from like hungry bugs in the ground, but your body's still sealed inside this box, and that box locks in heat and humidity, which means you are going to decompose regardless. Right. But once anaerobic bacteria step in to do their thing, the body's reduced to this gelatinous brown goop. And while disease-ridden corpse air might be a myth, there's still plenty of gas involved in this decomposition process. So given enough time, the pressure from the gas builds and builds while you're still being liquefied until finally, Boom? Boom? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe more pop. (laughs) Either way, the pressure inside can get so strong that the little square door at the front of the burial chamber blows open and out spills the foul, soupy mess that's you. Good Lord. I mean, this is stuff of nightmares. But so, so this really happens? Way more than you'd like to think. So sometimes you hear about them getting sued when like a family catches them opening a loved one's casket in order to
3: let the gas out. I mean, I get how that's a violation and all, but it really sounds like the owner is trying to save your family from some serious lifelong trauma. Yeah, I mean,
4: I'd much rather have someone occasionally burp my casket than, like, oh. <laughs> you
3: know, having people
4: wait around in this ankle-deep soup of me.
3: <laughs> that is so disgusting. I mean, if nothing else, there's just better ways for your body to spend its time after its death. I mean, for example, I remember this story from Mental Floss uh, a few years ago about creative ways to keep your dead body busy. You remember this story, mm-hmm, right? Definitely. And You know, one of the entries was just about how having your body cremated could help fuel a whole city. And and that was in Sweden, right? Yeah, yeah. So the the incinerators used for cremation demand a great deal of energy. So crematoriums are always on the lookout for ways to make the process greener. And one solution that a few European facilities came up with was to have the heat from the fires pull double duty so that the energy could be saved elsewhere. So with this idea in mind, the Swedish city of Helsingborg, they began sourcing as much as 10% of the heat for its homes from local crematoriums. That was back in 1997, and, you know, the idea has cropped up a bunch of times since then. But sometimes town councils shoot it down over, like, ethical concerns and <laughs> such. Well,
4: I mean, I- I'm all for greener tech, but I'm so nodding at this idea of warming our houses by a burning body.
3: Right, you're such a stickler, <laughs> Mango. But anyway, if, you- if you'd rather your body give back in another way, you can always donate it to science. Just make sure you do specify that you'd rather it be used for organ transplants than, say, like, you know, a facelift practice. What? <laughs> Do cosmetic surgeons actually practice on cadavers? They sure do. And In fact, I read this interview with Mary Roach, the author of a great book called Stiff, the Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. And I know we've read several of her books over the years. But mm-hmm. in this book, she breaks down what happens when someone wills their body to science. As she explains, quote, you donate to a specific institution like Harvard or the Mayo Clinic. You fill out the forms through the willed body program of the school. Most of the bodies are donated through anatomy labs. So you are dissected. But what you can do is specify things that you don't want done. For example, you could say, I don't want to be used specifically for cosmetic surgeries. You can select what you don't want, but not what you want, really. (laughs) so I guess there's no sense of being picky at that point. But it's still a little unnerving that you might end up with this botched facelift in the (laughs) afterlife. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, there are actually worse ways to go out than this. For instance, every year, universities conduct tons of safety tests using cadavers as crash test What? (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the funding for these tests come from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. But because automakers lack the medical resources needed for cadaver tests, plenty of schools also receive grants from companies like Ford and GM. That's awful. So even though we've probably dwelled on
4: death enough for one day, I'd hate to end this show on such a sour note. So instead, I actually want to tell you about what might be the best way for your body to spend its afterlife. All right. Well, what's that? So there's this pair of Italian designers who've actually come up with a new form of burial, and it's called Capsula Mundi, which means world's capsule in Latin. And basically, it's this egg-shaped organic casket that houses either cremated remains or a body placed in a fetal position. And once the capsule is buried, its biodegradable shell breaks down, and the exposed remains supply nutrients to this sapling that's planted just above it. So not only is the system environmentally friendly, but it's this great way to beautify traditional cemeteries while also highlighting the cycle of life.
3: That's a pretty great idea. And I I love the thought of, you know, replacing these austere, tombstone-laden graveyards with kind of a memorial forest. Mm -hmm. Imagine how much more connected you'd feel to your loved ones if you could visit a place like that and just sit beneath the tree they chose to represent them.
4: Yeah, it's got to be one of the most peaceful and
3: dignified ways a human body could be laid to rest. I agree. Well, before we put this episode to rest, <laughs> we've got a few last rites to perform. So, Mango, are you ready for the fact off? Always. All right. Well, I will start us off. So I- I'm here to confirm a fact that I'd heard before, but I wasn't sure if it was actually true. But yes, our bodies actually are taller when we wake up in the morning than when we go to sleep at (laughs) night. And the reason for that is all of the pressure that our upright posture puts on our joints each day. Because for the whole time we're on our feet or sitting up straight, the weight of our bones, you know, with a little help from gravity, it's working to compress the cartilage between the discs of our spine. Then we finally lay to rest at night and, and the pressure is off and our cartilage is able to expand back to its original shape. So when we wake up, we're actually a little bit taller than we were the night before. until we get squeezed down again through the day. Which is why I only slam dunk first thing in the morning. Right. (laughs) Of course. So I've got a fact that
4: seems appropriate since I know as soon as we finish this episode you're going to head down to have some ramen. Can't wait. And that's the fact that there's actually a word for the growling sound your stomach makes. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so the rumblings in your gut are known as borborygmy, among people who like to use technical terms. (laughs) And it's a cool little word we picked up from the Greek uh, borboryzing
3: which means to rumble. <laughs> to rumble. Okay. Well, I've got some major borborygmy going on right now. <laughs> I'm hungry. Okay. Well, I've got one that I looked into because a friend of mine has this remarkable ability to think herself to warmth in cold temperatures. I don't know if you know anybody like this, uh, I but don't... I remember standing outside in the cold before an event and a group of us were baffled because her bare hands we as warm as though she'd been in front of a heater or something like that. And it turns out your mind actually can help you keep warm. Now, you may have read about a group of Tibetan monks who were especially good at this. But, you know, a few years ago, a study was done where a group of Westerners were taught forceful breathing. And it actually did help them regulate their body temperatures. Hmm. So meditation triggers thermogenesis or, or body warming and also helps suppress the cooling mechanisms that our bodies use. You know, things like sweating or blood vessel dilation. So this is actually something that can happen. And the more I think about it, I got to start meditating because you know how much I hate being cold.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So this is another thing I'd heard, but I, I wasn't sure if I believed. And it's that our joints can actually predict the weather. But it turns out our grandparents were right. There's still some debate about the specifics of it, but there does appear to be a connection between joint issues like arthritis and the weather. And in one study at Tufts, they found that as temperatures dropped, knee pain among those with arthritis increased. And the researchers showed that this happens because the barometric pressure is actually a stabilizing factor for certain joints. And so if that pressure changes, our stabilization would change as well. And also, as temperatures drop, the thickness of the synovial fluid changes, and that's the fluid that helps keep our joints lubricated.
3: My granddad was right all along. That's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. About everything. About everything. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right. Well, here's another one. So I've always wondered why it is we don't notice everything has gone dark every few seconds when we blink. Well, it turns out that our brains have this really impressive ability to suppress the activity in the parts of the brain that help us detect changes in our environment. So our brains actually allow us to ignore those momentary periods of darkness and just see the world as though it's continuous. That's pretty awesome. So I I know we started the show
4: talking about an athlete with uh, superhuman abilities. And I know our goal was to tell Michael Johnson, who is listening, that our bodies are (laughs) special too. But I I think I've got a good one. So you know how you occasionally hear about these moments of superhuman strength, like a firefighter being able to lift a car to save someone that's trapped under it, or like a mom being able to do the same thing. Right. And it, it turns out there's actual science behind this. So whenever we're doing something that requires a certain amount of physical strength, our brains have a way of preventing our muscles from being overstimulated. And the purpose is to keep ourselves from injuring ourselves. But in moments of extreme stress, we also have the ability to override that suppression and physically accomplish all these things that wouldn't otherwise be capable of. Mm. Hence the reason for these moments of superhuman strength.
3: That's pretty awesome. And you're right. The whole point of this episode was to let Michael Johnson know that our bodies can do some amazing things, too. (laughs) Got it, Michael Johnson. And I think you've nailed it with that one, Mango. So I'm actually going to give you today's Fact Off trophy.
4: Thank you so much.
3: So that's it for today's episode. If you've got some great facts about the human body that we should have shared on today's episode, let us know. You can email us part genius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on our twenty four seven fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or as always, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
4: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
3: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
4: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing.
3: Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the Research Army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves! If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did Did we forget Jason? Jason who?